Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Ian Steffi. I don't fuck up your life thinking that at any moment some Civil War general is going to come into the shower with you, <laughs> bleed all over the walls and shit. Like, you don't need that possibility in your head. That and more. But first, these days you can get practically everything you want on demand, like this podcast. You can listen whenever you want when it's convenient for you. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages? You can get postage on demand with stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office right from your desk. 24-7 when it's convenient for you. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer, and then the mail carrier picks it up. <laughs> you know, I'm doing this thing where I, I mail people in swing districts about <laughs> encouraging them to vote for Democrats on November 6th, and I'm using Stamps.com, of course. I've been using Stamps.com for about seven years now. We use it for both Risk and the Story Studio, both of our businesses, and we've always loved it. You just click, print, mail, and you're done. It couldn't be easier. So right now, you can use Risk for this special offer. It includes up to $55 of free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. Whoa, whoa, whoa! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Risk. 
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Kim Petras behind me now with a song called Boo, Bitch, <laughs> because this is our annual Halloween special this year. My friends, this is Scary Stories 10, colon, Gadzooks. And you know what my favorite part is? The colon. I want to give a little shout out to three of our new Patreon patrons. There's Jason Kyle, there's Krista Sexhour, and there's A Hill. Uh, those three have given us $25 or more per month. Of course, you can give $8 a month, $5, a month, $10, $3 a month, $1. You can give any amount you want per month and get all of that bonus content that we offer at patreon.com slash risk. Now, as always, we have all kinds of scary on this year's Halloween episode. Spooky, scary, funny, scary, freaky, scary. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Kelly Coupel, who has never been on the show before. And before that, we're going to hear from Ryan Estrada, who you have heard on the show recently, our friend living over there in South Korea. But before all that, Sam Mullins has returned to the show. Sam did the Vancouver show that we did just a little time back. And here he is now with a story we call The Driving Dead. So this story uh, begins at a live storytelling event in Vancouver, not unlike this one. Um, there's this terrific uh, storytelling show on Main Street called The Flame, and uh, that's where I told some of my first live stories. And uh, the, the Flame has a very loyal audience, and um, a lot of the people that go to The Flame are sort of like the old guard of the Vancouver film and television industry. Like, if you throw a pebble in there, you're likely to hit someone who, like, held the boom on The X-Files in the 90s or, like, had a three-episode arc on CBC's The Beachcombers. Um, so there's lots of film types at the story show. And one night I tell a story there, and I'm having a, a cigarette outside, I'm, I'm on the lozenges now. And uh, this guy who I'd never seen before, he was like 50, he came up to me and he said, man, I really loved your story. But I, I got to tell you, the, the whole time you were up there, my, my brain was just lighting up because the whole time I was thinking, oh my God, this kid would be perfect as the protagonist in this film project that I'm working on. He's like, do, do you act at all? And I'm like, no, no, I don't, I don't act. Uh, I'm more of like a, a comedy writing person. And he's like, oh, but you, you just be so perfect for this role. It would, would it be okay if I sent you the script and you could think about it? I'll, I'll make you an offer. I'll give you a few days. So I give this guy uh, my email and he sends me the script and he makes me an offer. And at this moment in time, I'm in like my early 20s 
and I'm living in like the dankest of the dank Vancouver basement apartments and I'm literally like slinging waffles in this like brunch place and um one day I'm uh, slinging waffles and one of my coworkers is a server, Kelsey. And I tell her about this offer that this guy gave me and that he offered me more money to do this, this acting gig than I'd ever been offered in my life. And I'm like 32 years old now. It was still the most money I've ever been offered to do anything, which is sad. Uh, but... I, I tell her that I'm, not, I'm thinking about not doing it because the thought of being the lead in a film just fills me with too much anxiety. I'm like, it's not worth it. And she's like, Sam, you're a waffle waitress. When someone offers you a job that isn't being a waffle waitress, you need to say yes to this opportunity. So I'm like, I, I guess I'm an actor now. Um, so I take the starring role in this film. And what this project was was a zombie themed driver safety video <laughs> paid for by the government of Vancouver <laughs> for internal use only <laughs> so i guess the idea of of the premise is like, hey, even if the zombie apocalypse is upon us, don't forget to buckle up, city employee. Really, really check those mirrors before you back up the truck. Um, so I accept the role, and in, in the negotiation, I'm even able to uh, finagle a job for one of the guys in my comedy troupe. Peter, and Peter's over the moon because he somehow has an even danker apartment than me and he needs the money um so the film shoot took place over the course of three days up in the mountains uh, above north van uh, where the reservoir for the whole city is and up there there's like it's like in the forest and there's all these huge buildings uh, that house all the water purification equipment and there's like this big manicured lawn about the size of a football field and when you stand on the lawn you have like a bird's eye view of all of Vancouver so we're shooting this one sequence on the day and it's the final day of shooting where I'm basically running from zombies uh, but being so safe around cars <laughs> I'm so safe around cars you guys um, and th there's this scene where it, it seems like the zombies are about to get me so I run out of the building and who should pull up in a white Ford F-250 but my friend Peter who I got the role for and he kicks open the door and his character kind of reaches out to mine and says something to the effect of come with me if you want to live and uh, my, my dear friend Peter he's, he's like he's one of these guys that just gets away with everything you know like he, he's one of these guys that'll show up to a job interview two hours late and he'll start roasting the interviewer about their choice of decor in their office and somehow get the job like he's he's one of these very charming and unflappable people so we're shooting this scene between my character and peter's character we're in the truck driving down this wooded road and this is like a full film shoot. Like there's like, there's like gaffers and assistant directors and like craft services. But of everyone up there, I am the only person that knows that Peter, 
the person driving the truck in the driver safety video does not have a driver's license. <laughs> and in fact, has never once in his life sat in the driver's seat of a vehicle. But, but I'm not worried. Because, you know, it's so, it's so isolated up there and we're just like driving very slowly while we get this dialogue scene and the only people in the truck are just me and Peter and our new best friend, the sound guy who crouches on the floor behind us holding up a little microphone. Um, so, so we get all of those shots for the dialogue scene and we pull over the side of the road and, and we're sitting there just talking when... 40 zombie extras show up and the director comes over to our window and he he says okay for this final shot of the film i'm going to direct the zombies to sort of mill about randomly and peter if you could just sort of weave the truck <laughs> through them accelerate towards that building and slam on the brakes, ideally making a squealing sound, stopping just short of that building, we'll have the shot. So the first few takes don't work at all because Peter's so terrified he's not driving fast <laughs> at all. Like, like in one of the takes, there's zombies actually passing us because we're, we're going two kilometers an hour. Um, and we're not going fast enough to get that s tire squeal at the end. So, so we do about nine takes, and the director comes over to the window, and he says, okay, um, we're just going to do this one more time. But Peter, really go for it this time. <laughs> Which filled me with fear because in the last few takes, I had seen Peter getting more and more confident in a bad way. And as Peter rolled up the window, I already knew exactly what was going to happen. Because Peter really did go for it. And he weaved the truck aggressively through the extras. And he accelerated towards the building, slamming on the brakes, letting out the desired squealing sound. As Peter crashed the government truck <laughs> through the government building in a driver safety video paid for by the government. So we get out of the truck and all the union film guys are like, what the fuck? And because we crashed into a workplace on a work day, like dozens of people are coming out of the building, like, what the hell are you guys doing? And we're like, isn't it obvious? We're shooting a driver safety video. So one of the guys who comes out of the building, he looks more serious than the other guys. He sort of looks like Sean Penn. And he takes the director aside. And I'm close enough within earshot that I can hear Sean Penn say the words, uh, internal investigation. <laughs> and I turn to Peter. I'm like, Peter, I think you got to tell the, the director that you don't have a driver's license to see if he can nip this in the butt. 
Um, so we wave the director over, Peter comes clean, and the director's like, I never heard, this conversation never happened. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Peter is unflappable, but in this moment, he's flapped, he's beside himself. And around the corner comes no fewer than eight police cars. <laughs> into the parking lot. And Peter's like, what the fuck? Did they, did they call the police? Am I gonna be arrested for crashing into a building without a license? Like Peter's like two seconds from running into the woods and starting a new life. Uh, when in the distance, we hear a helicopter. And pretty soon we see a helicopter and we're, we're so high up that the helicopter is actually below us and it's coming over the trees up towards us and before long it's right above us. And Peter and I, when we look up at it, we're confused with what we see and Peter's like, what the hell is that? And underneath the helicopter, there's a long rope that's tethered to a stretcher. And on the stretcher is a body bag <laughs> with a dead human inside of it. And it slowly descends onto this grassy area right in the middle of the 40 zombie extras and the police and me and Peter and Sean Penn. And they lower it softly onto the ground. The police officers come and collect the body. They put it into the trucks and they drive away all eight cars and the helicopter leaves and we're all just kind of standing there stunned. <laughs> and a few minutes later the director comes over and he's like, guys, I just got to see the footage of that final shot and it's so good. <laughs> so we're wrapped. So you guys should get out of here. <laughs> so Peter and I drive back down into Vancouver. I drive. We go to Wendy's. I get the number two combo, Peter pays. And because the world is cruel to actors, the next day I was back at my waffle job. And uh, I'm waiting tables with the woman, Kelsey, who convinced me to do this project in the first place. And uh, this, she's like a really uh, sunny person. But this day after the shoot, she, she seemed like there was a dark cloud over her all day. And I'm like, Kelsey, what's going on? Are you okay? She says, Sam, the most fucked up thing happened. I was hiking by myself in North Van and I found a dead body. And I called it in, and I had to wait with it until the helicopter came to take it away. Yeah. <laughs> so, it took me a few years before I was ready to watch the zombie-themed driver safety video. And it was not good. <laughs> and I was not good in it. 
if you guys want to watch it, if you type into YouTube, The Driving Dead Metro Vancouver, you can see what your tax dollars are up to. Um, and true to form, Peter got in no trouble over this. He didn't even get an email. Uh, and uh, last year, Peter turned 32, and he got his driver's license. Uh, so watch out for him. Uh, and I found out that the body that we saw that day was actually a hiker uh, who was 20 years old who had gone missing six months earlier after he went on a hike by himself. But watching the driver video all these years later in preparation for this story, uh, I was struck by how quickly life can careen from comedy to tragedy and how some days all you can do is buckle up. Thank you. It's all about survival. Always check behind your vehicle. Never drive while distracted. Slow down, speed kills. Safety always comes first. You know that feeling when you're having a really, really bad dream and there's something after you and you know that it wants you dead. And then just before it happens, you bolt awake and your heart is beating, you're dripping in sweat, but you realize everything's okay. It was all just a dream. I once had the opposite of that. In the dream, everything was great. I was relaxing on the beach, sun in my eyes, sand in the toes. But then I felt something creeping in from the outside world. Thousands of tiny legs tapping on my chest. Papery skin running along my legs. And then it kept multiplying. I felt it in my hair, on my arms in between my toes, creeping up on my face, some living thing all over my body. And the sound, the sound of thousands and thousands of living things feeling like it's enveloping and entombing me. And that's when I woke up into the nightmare. I was on a tiny island off the coast of Thailand called Koh Phi Phi. In 2004, the Indian Ocean tsunami killed a quarter of a million people. 
It was the seventh most deadly natural disaster in history. Shortly after that, I had just moved to Kopipi to volunteer and help in any way that I could. Many people told me, what are you doing? That's not a good idea, because even on the news, the scientists, the experts, they all said, we don't know if this is finished. There could be another wave at any moment. And when I got to the island, the feeling of death was never too far away. Every day as I was hauling debris, dive teams would be deep in the underwater graveyard, pulling the victims' bodies out of the water. I remember one time I was working in the children's center, taking care of the kids so their parents could help rebuild, and this girl came up with this drawing, and it was all blue with these little shapes floating in the water, and I said, oh, are those fish? And she said, no, people. And I said, are are they swimming? And she said, no, die. Every person I met had a horror story, but it wasn't something that had happened to a friend of a friend. It was something they had just witnessed and something that always ended with, and it could happen again. The one thing no one was telling me was how to tell if another tsunami was coming. Until one day I was hauling away the debris from what used to be an old hotel, and this old man sitting on a rock just kind of whispered as I walked by, and he said, Watch the animals. I didn't understand what he meant, and it looked like every syllable was painful coming out, but I had to ask what he meant. And he said, The day it happened, the animals were acting strange. The dogs were howling. The pets ran away. On the mainland, the elephants all ran to the tops of the mountains. The animals knew before we did. But we didn't listen. Watch the animals. So this brings us back to that moment when I woke up from the nightmare. As I opened my eyes, the first thing that hit me was how dark it was, because I knew I had left the light on. And I could see light, but it was like thunderbolts shooting from the ceiling of my room. And as I kind of squinted with no glasses, trying to adjust my vision and adjust to the darkness, I saw that the light was on, but it was covered by some living thing that wasn't letting the light through except for these sparks shooting out. And as I tried to focus on what was in those sparks, I saw that the entire room, all of the air was filled with these same creatures. I just saw flashes of legs and eyes and antennae crashing and entangling with one another. And I followed the light to the walls of the thatched hut that I was living in, walls that I could no longer see. Whatever this was, was just covering them, crawling over every inch of the room. And then I looked down at myself. Those legs that I'd felt all over my body were there. What appeared to be locusts were covering every square inch of my naked body. And that's when I screamed. They all flew up and it looked like a swarm of bats flying away from me except pencil thin with long spindly legs. 
and I jumped out of the bed and I ran out of the room hoping to get to safety, but what I found was even worse than what I'd seen in the room because I was now standing naked in the deep jungle and as far as I could see, this cloud of locusts stretched through all the trees and all the trails. It never ended. I had to run, but first I reached my arm back in my room to quickly find anything I could to cover myself. I found an old pair of shorts, and I was running and hopping at the same time, trying to put these on, but after a month of working in the hot sun, they could barely fit me. And as I'm doing that, that image of that child's drawing kept coming back to me, all of those shapes floating, and it matched the shapes in the sky, and it kept reminding me of all those bodies floating in the ocean and then suddenly something hit me it was so heavy and alive it felt like a disembodied head hit me in the leg and then another one hit me in the thigh and I looked at the ground and I saw eyes looking up at me and as I focused I saw that it was these giant jungle frogs that had somehow blown from the sky and another hit me in the back and I just jumped over them and I kept running and that's when I heard the sound I looked up and I saw dozens of yellow eyes staring down at me from the sky as I saw them in the trees I knew exactly what it was it was the gang of feral distorted, inbred island cats that had taken over this part of the jungle. They were all mangled with knotted fur and twisted tails, but the most frightening thing about them was that they all had the exact same markings. They were solid white with a swoop of black fur over one eye and a small rectangular patch under their noses. I used to joke that they looked like Hitler cats, but in this moment there was nothing funny about it because that was when I realized the animals were acting strange. This was exactly what the old man had warned us about and I knew there was a tsunami coming. And not only that, the plague of locusts, that's biblical end of days shit. Reign of frogs, that's straight out of the Bible. Hitler cats heading for higher ground, that's not in the Bible, but it was not good. So I ran. I was looking around for anyone, anywhere to turn to. I knew that there were other huts around here, but I saw no lights, I saw no people. It was nothing but darkness and insects and frogs as I ran trying to find someone, anything. I I imagined, what if they've all already evacuated? I don't know where to go. So I just ran through the darkness. I still didn't have my glasses. I was completely night blind and branches were just smacking me in the face, scratching me and making me bleed. As I ran with no shoes, the sharp rocks and thorny roots were cutting up my feet. I couldn't even use my hands to find my way because it was all I could do to hold up the loose-fitting pants that barely covered my frame. And I just ran and ran in terror. I couldn't even open my mouth to breathe even though I was hyperventilating because it would immediately be filled with these insects. And then I finally came upon the clearing 
I reached the top of the hill and I looked out and I could see the lights. I could see the entire beach and everyone was there. Partying. Not panicking. It was Friday night. They hadn't evacuated, they just didn't know. It was up to me to tell them. I didn't know what to say. I I had learned about what had happened, but I didn't know what we were supposed to do. What was I warning people for? I knew we should head to higher ground, but this was a small island. There was no higher ground to head to. I felt like if I'm going to tell people about what's going to happen, I needed to know what to say. So I had to find someone that I knew so together we could come up with a plan. I ran into the bar, but still night blind, without glasses. It was hard to find someone that I recognized. I, I had to get my face inches from everyone else's, trying to see if I could recognize any features. As I ran, it was just a blur of eyes and noses and faces that I didn't know, laughing and mocking me. And I stopped and realized why no one was taking me seriously. I took a look at myself and realized I was standing almost completely naked except for this pair of shorts so loose I might as well have worn nothing at all. My my hair and beard were splayed out in every direction. My face was covered in bloody scratches. My legs were caked in this gross mixture of blood and dirt and I was just hyperventilating in the middle of the bar and I was getting more and more desperate and finally when I found someone that I knew I'd met. I didn't know their names, but I recognized them, and I went up to them, and I tried to explain everything that I'd seen, the plague of locusts, and the reign of frogs, and the Hitler cats, and and I saw him take in what I'd said, and he stood up and announced to everyone, this guy is wasted! And I knew no one was going to take me seriously. No one believed me. I had been shown a sign, and I was the only messenger this island had. But I didn't know what to do. So I decided I had to take care of it myself. I took the only other piece of advice anyone had given me to heart. They said that before the water goes up, it first comes down. So I marched to the ocean. I sat in the sand, and I watched... For the tide to recede. It was so dark I could barely see, but I just squinted and watched the barest ripples of moonlight to know that the ocean was still there. And the next thing I remember was darkness. I got that feeling again that I was asleep in the outside world was clawing its way in. But this time I felt hot. It felt like my face was buried in burning hot sand. So I opened my eyes. And my face was in fact buried in burning hot sand. I rolled over to see the sky and the sun. I looked out and saw all the people just walking down the street heading to work, averting their eyes. Again, I looked down at my own body and realized that my shorts had long since given up on covering anything, and I was now lying naked in the sand as everyone tried to go about their day. Nothing had happened. 
it wasn't the end of days. So I got up, I put on my pants, and I walked back to my hut. When I opened the door, absolutely everything was covered in mountains of dead insects. That very afternoon, I went back to the old man to try and find some explanation for what I'd lived through. And I gotta tell you, I have never heard anyone laugh as loud as he did at how I'd interpreted his warning. Because you see, it turns out on this island, there's a specific breed of insect that does exactly that. Once a year, they live only for one night, so they spend the entire night breeding and laying the eggs for the next generation. Now, normally, they'll go out deep in the jungle to do this unless some asshole goes to bed early, leaves the lights on, and draws them out to the cabins. When this happens, the frogs come out for the free bug buffet, and all of this action pisses off the Hitler cats who head up into the trees to get away from it. Turns out I hadn't survived the apocalypse. I'd survived a self-inflicted insect orgy. This was a very small island in a very small community. So I never really lived this down. And I had just been through the most terrifying night of my life. But it did have two upsides. Number one, no one had ever seen that old man that happy. And number two, even if it was all in my head, I knew that I had stared down the apocalypse and won. My husband and I bought this dilapidated bungalow in downtown Phoenix. Now, we worked night and day on this house until it was absolutely beautiful. And everybody in the neighborhood would come over all the time, and every Wednesday night we would have potluck at my house. My home was the hub of the neighborhood, and people even called it the mayor's house. And I loved to take care of my neighbors, and I loved to be mayor. So one day, my girlfriend Mel... She was about twice my age. She was from Sweden. Super cool. I loved her. She walked down to my house and she said, Kel, 
how about we get all the girls together this next weekend and go away? I know of this wonderful place in Globe, Arizona. There's all these natural hot springs. There's a beautiful hotel. The Rolling Stones used to stay there. And we can rent it out to ourselves. We don't have to wear clothes. We can just go from hot spring to hot spring. We can just send out, read. It will be fabulous. And I said, oh, that's fantastic. Definitely, I'm in. So we got a group of girls together. We all pitched in some money, and Friday was coming along. That's the day we were going. And I remember I packed in my bag some really nice towels because I wanted to stay in the hotel, my bathrobe, and a cooler full of really healthy food, a cutting board, and two of my favorite knives. And so on Friday that afternoon, Mel and I drove out to the hot spring together in her white Toyota pickup. And we loaded everything, and we started driving. And it was a beautiful day. There was nothing wrong with the day. But about halfway through the drive, I just got this really horrible feeling, this sense like something just wasn't quite right. And so I thought, well, maybe there's something wrong with my husband or my dogs. I'm just not, I'm not sure why I feel this way. But I didn't want to say anything to Mel because we had just left. We weren't even there yet. And I really needed to get away. So right before we got to our final destination, I saw that there was a gas station. And I said, Mel, could you please pull over? I'm actually going to go use the phone. I want to call Ivan. Because this is a while back, and I had a cell phone, but I shared it with my husband, and I thought nothing of leaving it at home. And Mel didn't have a phone either. We were sort of just free spirits. So we got to this gas station, and I remember I walked in, and there was a man behind the counter, and I asked to use the phone. And he legitimately told me there was no phone there. So nobody had a phone. So I just sort of sucked it up, walked back out. I think Mel filled up her truck with some gas, and we continued driving to the hot spring. So then I sort of was trying to change my mind around and thinking, okay, you're going to go to this fabulous place, just, you know, it's going to be wonderful. And when we approached, I was really looking forward to like a beautiful wrought iron gate and manicured shrubs and just a really beautiful place to vacation. But that wasn't true. We came to this chain link fence, and there was actual barbed wire above the fence and a padlock. And Mel had the code to the padlock or the combination, and she jumped out of the pickup truck, unlocked it, we went through, and it was just a gravel road. And so right away, I looked to my left, and no shit, there was this like dilapidated, just like the bungalow that I restored, this really dilapidated little structure, and next to it was a rusty school bus. And the first structure right there, it had a porch. And all of a sudden, I really, I'm like, what the heck is that? There was movement. And it was a dog, and the dog was tethered to the porch. And right away, I grabbed Mel's knee, I'll never forget, and I said, Mel, if we're here alone for the weekend, there's nobody here, we rented it out, why the heck would anybody leave a dog? Because I was a dog person, I had four dogs. And she said, Kel, don't worry about it, I've been here before, you know, the groundskeeper probably left the dog here, it probably can self-regulate and has food and water. But if you feel like it later, we can definitely come and feed the dog. So I'm a little, I'm like, man, I just don't feel right, and this is weird, this isn't what I expected. But we carried on, and we're driving down this gravel road, and I look to my right then, and there's this two-story building, and it's the hotel. But it's, the paint is falling off, and it's, it's just super old, and looks like it's on its last leg, and it is not where I would want to stay at all. But Mel said, come on, Kel, let's go check this out, let's just look around, use the bathroom. So we go in, and right away, I'm just overcome with this smell. And you can see in the main room that there had been people in there and they had pumpkins. And they had thrown the pumpkins against the wall and you can see where the pumpkin landed on the wall because you see the moldy flesh. And then you can see the orange stripe where it dropped down the wall to the floor. And then there are about 20 moldy pumpkins. Now I'm down with being funky and like throwing things, that feels great, but I clean my pumpkin up, right? This was just disgusting. And I said to her, 
how can this be? I thought, you know, you've been here before. And she said, well, a lot of groups come here and they probably just didn't have time to clean it up. So don't worry, everything's fine. So I went to find a bathroom. The bathrooms were not usable. They were all just plugged up and disgusting. And this is the truth. And there was also no electricity and no telephone to use. So we came out of this hotel, which really wasn't a hotel, but I guess someday it was. And we got, um, we were looking around and there was a wooden picnic table. And Mel said, Kelly, let's load this into the back of my pickup and we'll drive down to the campsites and we'll make camp. And as I'm helping her load this wooden picnic table into the bed of her um, pickup truck, I noticed that all around there's rudimentary garden implements. I'm not kidding. Just like scattered, rusty shovels and rakes and pickaxes, just rusty crap all around. And any good gardener would pick up this stuff and put it away. So I'm already feeling weird. And I might have been overboard at that moment, but I told her, I said, any weirdo could use these things to hurt somebody. So I started gathering them. I put them in the bed of the truck and we carried on. Now, as we're driving to the campground, I said to her, I said, Mel, how about this? How about we just turn around, you take me back to that gas station, I'll wait for somebody with a phone, and I'll call my husband and I'll have him pick me up because I just don't feel well. And again, and I really liked her, and she was twice my age, and this really cool lady, and she reassured me, Kelly, it's going to be fine. You just need to relax. There's nothing wrong with this place. So we get to where we can set up camp, and we do so, and she has like this beautiful tablecloth she brought, and we start cooking and lighting a fire, and the other girls trickle in. But I have this weird, weird feeling like something is horribly wrong, just this impending sense of doom. But nobody else is feeling it, and I'm asking them, don't you feel like something's here other than ourselves? And nobody agrees, and so everybody's just eating and having a fun time. And I can't help myself but gather some sticks, and I take the tin foil that I brought to cook my food in, and I wrap it around the ends of these sticks, and I make two torches, no shit, and I light them on fire. And I start walking the periphery of our camp, little me, and I'm like the littlest one and the youngest one there, and I'm like, I know you're out there, motherfucker. I know you're out there. And my husband knows I'm the fuck here, and if you do something, you're in fucking deep kimchi. I mean, it was, it, I was so scared. And, and my girlfriends were getting so annoyed, but the top, to top it off, seriously, I had a whistle on my keychain, and I tethered it around my neck, and I put the knives that I brought, the cutlery, on the edge of the picnic table so they'd be like an easy grab. And so I would then like blow on my whistle and grab my knives and you know, like stab at the air and say, I know you're out there. I did this until I tired myself out and my girlfriends were just so sick of me. So it was like time to go to bed. And they decided that they wanted to sleep in the open air. And I thought, there is no way I am going to be an easy, vulnerable target. So I got into the cab of Mel's truck and I rolled towels in both of the windows and I had my knives and my whistle. And I thought, if there's something out there, this person or this thing will not know where my head is or my feet. They will not know how to get me. They'll get those girls, right? They're easy targets. <laughs> So I try to sleep, I, I do, and I can't. And all of a sudden it's morning and the sun's out and I get out of the cab of the truck and oh my God, I'm insane. Everybody is fine, nothing was wrong. They all slept great, nobody was harmed, everything's perfect and it's actually really beautiful now that I can see in daylight, right? So initially that day I felt fine, like for the few, first couple of hours that morning. But then that afternoon when we all sort of scattered about and I was reading and others were painting or going from hot spring to hot spring, I felt that feeling again, but it was worse than ever. 
So because I was alone and there was daylight, instead of lighting torches, I just kept on like flipping off the air and saying, you motherfucker, I know you're there and like jumping around and scaring myself. And like, I, it was crazy. I couldn't believe it, but I couldn't like keep it inside. It was so real. And again, I just, it, it, was, it was tiring me out. So it comes time for dinner and I'm having dinner with everybody. We're eating this wonderful food and having a great time. And I'm really trying to be in the moment and relax and just to have a good time with my friends. And I can't. So again, after we eat, I try to wait as long as I can. I can't control myself. I light those fucking torches again and I do my freaking dance, but it's louder than ever. So my one girlfriend, Amy, and she was a really smart lady, and she just grabbed me and she said, Kel, you need to chill the fuck out. You really do. You're ruining this for everybody. And I was so, like, like in that moment, I felt, like, so embarrassed and so hurt and just, like, lonely. So I went to the, the only thing I could do. I found refuge in Mel's cab, the cab of her truck. I put my towels up again, and I just hunkered down with my whistle and my knives, and I thought, shit. I don't know why I feel this way. It's horrible, but nobody else feels it. So I'm just like, SOL. So I try to sleep again. It's not happening at all. But I just lay there all night, and all of a sudden it's morning again. I get out of the truck, same scenario. Everybody's fine. It's perfect. Everybody's alive. Nothing has happened. Now it's Sunday, the last day there, and I've ruined this trip for myself. I have not enjoyed a single second. And so I think Amy was right. I need to chill the fuck out. I need to have a good time. So Mel, my good friend who planned this trip, she and I get together, and we're going to go to a hot spring, and I'm actually going to try to have a good time. So I'll never forget, um, she had a towel around her, and she took off her towel and went in the hot spring, and I had, like, this man's shirt on, but it was unbuttoned. And I was going to attempt to try to have fun and go in this hot spring, but I just, something in me was like, don't take off your clothes, don't get in that thing, don't do it. So she's, you know, doing her thing, and I'm talking to her, and I'm pretending like I'm okay, and I'm just counting the moments until I can pack up, and we're going to leave. And she gets out, and I hand her her towel. And uh, as she's wrapping her towel around herself, she drops it. And at the very same instant, she screams, Jonathan! And I don't know what she's talking about, and I'm sort of just overcome with my anxiety that I've had the whole weekend, but I look into her gaze where she's looking into the reeds right by where we were. And I don't know what it is at first, because it sort of looks like, like a short, fat totem thing, colorful. And then my eyes sort of adjust, and it is a bald man without a shirt on, covered with tattoos, on his knees, with his pants undone, with his hands down his pants. And this is Jonathan, the groundskeeper. He was supposed to be gone the whole time. He knew this, but he had been watching us and hiding out and masturbating and watching us. This is the evil that I felt the whole time. I'm telling you. So I, I could not, I couldn't move. I couldn't pee. I couldn't talk. I couldn't do anything. And my friends, the other ladies that were there, they were like, oh, fucking pervert. They were really not making a big deal out of it. Nobody said, Kelly, this is what you felt. Holy shit, this is wrong. We could call the police. We could, nobody did anything. So I really don't remember exactly what I was doing these next moments. The next thing I remember is that we were in her truck, everything was packed up, and we had a very long, quiet drive back home. And I got back home. Of course, I told my husband, and he was beside himself. And we just couldn't believe that nobody thought this was a big deal. Because, I mean, think about somebody watching you the whole time while you're naked and, and doing these things, and you don't know what they're thinking or what they're capable of. So um, 
everything too in the neighborhood changed. Usually on Tuesdays, people would call me and say, Kelly, should I bring gazpacho? What should I bring for potluck on Wednesday? Because every Wednesday, like I told you, people had dinner at my house, the entire neighborhood, including all those women who went with me. So I was really sad and lonely, and I'd walk my dogs, nobody would come out, and I was hurt. So one day, I'll never forget, I was mowing our lawn. We had an electric lawnmower, and I remember I was moving the cord so I wouldn't mow over it. And I saw my neighbor Lex, this guy walking down the street to my gate, and he motioned for me to turn off my lawnmower, so I did. And I let him through the gate, and he motioned for me to go to my stoop. So we walked to my porch, and we sat down by one another. And he looked at me, and he said, Kelly, thank you. I didn't know what he was talking about, and then he had a newspaper in his hand, and he opened it, and there was an article, and you can still see this to this day, and it says, Jonathan Bailey, groundskeeper at Eden Hot Springs in Globe, Arizona, murdered the missing, there's a missing physician who he had murdered, who had gone to the hot spring, and he had hid this physician in that school bus that was there. And now when the police connected him to this murder, and he knew that they were coming to the hot spring, he put a bullet through his own head, so he had the capabilities to do anything, right? This guy who was watching us, I could feel his evil, right? He had guns, he had ammo, he could use them. He killed people. So, so it felt really good to have that validated, that I felt that way for a reason, that I wasn't a fucking psycho, right? I didn't ruin it for no reason. I ruined it for a good reason. And uh, <laughs> that, that night, my husband and I were eating on our porch, and again, I was still sort of jigged out by all this. And then I saw the girls who I went to the hot springs with, all the neighbor ladies, walking towards my house, and they all had, seriously, they were all bearing gifts. It was like a, it could have been a funeral procession or a wedding march, I don't know. But they were coming with gifts, and it felt sort of good because they were coming into my yard, and they came up on the porch, and they gave me all these wonderful things, and they were saying, Kelly, you know, thank you. We don't know what that guy could have done, but thanks for, you know, going with your gut and not being afraid. Thank you. And I'm sorry, you know, we were so bitchy to you. And then, you know, we all, they were hugging me and it was great and we were eating together and it was wonderful. So, you know, in the end, it was a horrible experience and I'm glad, you know, my emotions and my intuition was validated. But also, it felt really, really good to be mayor again. And that's it. So thank you. This is Risk, this is Rockwell, and 
band, Michael Jackson, behind me now. And we just heard from Kelly Coppell. She shared that story at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. And before that, a little something by Gnarls Barkley. And before that, a story by Ryan Estrada. You can find it at ryanestrada.com. Jeff Barr edited that, all those frogs and locusts and Hitler cats. And then before that, we played around with that Driver's Ed video starring Sam Mullins. Now, in a little bit, we are going to hear from Malik Masters. When she isn't telling stories about cannibalism, she's telling the final story on this episode. (laughs) But before that... We're going to hear from Ian Steffe. He returns to the podcast. He told this story the last time that Risk was in Baltimore. You can find Ian on Twitter at Ian Von Steffen. Here he is now with a story we call Ghost Dead. I'm eight years old. I'm lying in bed trying to tire out my eyes and I'm reading Johnny Tremaine. And I just wanted to get some sleep for school the next morning. And as I'm reading the book, I hear laughter. It's coming from inside my closet. It's not menacing. It's just sort of like this high-pitched Slim Pickens giggle. Like someone heard a joke in church that they weren't supposed to laugh at and they're just laughing at the idea of laughing. And I'm sitting there reading my book and my brain goes... Well, Ian, that's your pet rabbit. And I went, that is, in fact, an excuse. So, okay, it's my pet rabbit in his cage. And I continue reading the book. Like 45 seconds passes, and I went, wait a minute. Rabbits are usually silent. It's kind of what their reputation is. And I did, like, this bad Abbott and Costello double take, and I ran to my parents' room. I woke up my dad first. He ends up going, Like, what'd you hear? And I said, I heard a man laughing. It's that common trope that you hear. Like, I heard a noise. Put me to bed. Ruffle my hair. Give me a glass of water. So he's like, okay. And he walks me down the hallway holding my hand. And then he kicks open my bedroom door. Where the fuck are you? I didn't invite you here. And he's holding rosary beads. And he starts praying the Vatican rite of exorcism. He leaves the room, he comes back with a camera and starts taking pictures in my closet. And then after he's done, he goes, whatever was here is now gone. Nighty night. And so I'm standing there in my Super Mario pajamas, I'm like, well, fuck, the boogeyman's real, right? Like, that's, that was proof. That was my life. My father was a paranormal investigator in the 1980s and 1990s. never a conversation where we sat down and we were like, like my mom never said like, well, sometimes your father breaks into mental institutions that Ronald Reagan closed down and he's trying to prove the existence of the devil. Like we never, that would have been nice to talk about, but we didn't get that. So instead you would know what he was doing. Like we were, it, was, it was by inference. He would, he would come down the stairs sometimes at dusk 
and he would watch The Exorcist in full. And then he would take a black antique doctor's bag and load it with like a camera, a tape recorder, uh, a, a, a Poland Springs bottle with a label ripped off that just said holy water and Sharpie on the side of it. And then he would go break into derelict cemeteries taking pictures of ghosts. Um, how I found out why he was doing this uh, is, is from my mom, because she's like the only person that's, I, I still talk to. <laughs> it's normal. Um, but she explained to me that he was like a child of half habits. Like he had a lot of attention deficit disorder. Like he wanted to be something big, but he couldn't get there. His family put a yoke of responsibility on him. He always had to work jobs to take care of his mom, jobs to take care of his sisters. Like, so when he wanted to be a paleontologist, it was like, that's not gonna make enough money. Instead, you work. You went in the military, you work. So by this point, let's say 1979, 1980, he's watching an episode of That's Incredible hosted by Fran Tarkenton and two other 70s haircuts. And they're doing an episode about infrared photography. And this guy's got this picture that he got in a Toys R Us of this guy made completely out of smoke with a denim jacket on with eyes glowing, right, looking right back at you. And my father watching the episode went, well, fuck, I could do that. And he did. He went and broke into a cemetery. And in rather, like, when you watch these kind of, like, haunted shows, they have, like, orbs. Like, big blasts of light. Like, that would happen if you just, like, had your flash on by, like, a fleck of dust. He can get those pictures. The pictures he got with infrared photography was, like, accordion-armed War of the World's creatures over the tombstones. And after doing that that night, he's just like, you know what? That was the one time I did it, and shoved it in a drawer and moved on with his life. He just, he continued his interest in the paranormal. My mom would always buy him books for Christmas about what ghosts, like in New England, New Jersey. Um, and he's continuing this like obsession because he doesn't really believe in ghosts, but he does. And I, I don't know, like he's just trying to find something, a reason why to be. And he ends up seeing this picture in a book of something very similar to something he got in the cemetery. It was a, a picture of a woman standing eight feet tall in front of the doors of this place called the Joshua Ward House in Salem, Massachusetts. A place where witches were allegedly tortured. This huge picture. My dad writes a letter to the author. He's like, I don't know if I believe in that, but I'd like to find out. And the writer goes, okay, well, I'll bring you there. So they walk around, they take pictures, they're cracking jokes. My dad gets up to the second floor and he feels a hand wrap around his throat. He felt himself rise off the floor, his toes touching the carpet. Something picked him up by the fucking throat. And at that very moment, he's like, I believe in God. That was his religious conversion, just getting choked out in a fucking haunted house. <laughs> so what's that like growing up with that with a father? You go to at least four schools. <laughs> like, you have to continue to explain that you're okay. And like some, like... He, he, was, he started this love affair with paranormal investigation. He was taking pictures and all the fucking hits. Like, he even went to Poe's grave and took pictures. Like, he was going on sightings and Unsolved Mystery and the History Channel. All the shit that you watch now at two in the morning when you're stoned. <laughs> he's doing that. And as a kid, I'm lonely because, like, he's doing all these crazy investigations. It ends up in the newspaper. Uh, even my Spanish teacher in middle school called me Fantasma. Like, I'm getting heckled by children and teachers. <laughs> so what do you do? Um, I spent a lot of time alone, watched a lot of television, watched a lot of stand-up. I admired the fact that they were unbullyable people. I thought it was cool that you could just kind of reverse the inertia of someone's shitty behavior being a stand-up. And I watch it all the time. But my dad 
working two jobs as a respiratory therapist and also doing ghost hunting because you don't make money ghost hunting, come on. <laughs> he doesn't have enough time for me. So the author I told you about, this guy named Bob, he was someone who was completely different. My father's taking these pictures because he's trying to prove the existence of the afterlife. It was like a religious conversion, as I told you. But with Bob, he's turning into money. Bob wrote 37 books on the occult in New England, things about like pirates, treasure, and he was incredible. Like he monetized being an artist. He was a regular blue collar guy raising money for his family and he did the interests that he got to do. So seeing me being picked on and my father not being available, Bob starts to pick me up. He'd swing by in his Ford Crown Victoria and fucking bring me to all these random places in Salem and Marblehead telling me all about the occult and witchcraft, but presenting it in a way where it's interesting in conversation. He really did give a shit. Like, I remember running my jokes past him when I was like 15 years old. The first things I ever wrote for theater class, and he just gave a shit. And my father, nose to the grindstone, he cared, but he wasn't there. We end up moving to Tucson when I'm 18. My father is pursuing a job as a nurse. Ghost hunting started to fade away as another hobby like all the other ones did. And he went and moved to Tucson because it's going to be $70 an hour. We're all going to have a, a stable life. We finally had stability for six months as he's working this job as a nurse. I lose a bunch of weight. I get popular with girls. We don't talk about the ghosts anymore. I have a good life. And my father got sick. Six months into working as a nurse, he ended up getting a cold. He always had a personal fable and burnt his candle at both ends. So like, he's working at this hospital too many fucking hours and he ends up getting a cold that turns into pneumonia, that turns into double pneumonia, that went septic. And he almost dies. I say goodbye to him. And what was f when he fucking survived this, I didn't get him left. The storyteller, the weirdo, the, the hero becomes fragile. He starts wondering if he has cancer. He's palpating constantly. He's praying a lot. He watches Vietnam movies now. He's thinking about like, all the things that had happened up to this point and his brain couldn't take it anymore. And you look back on those ghost hunting things and you go, that might not have happened. That might have been a very sick man. After he got sick, he stopped working. My mom, trying to keep everything together, ended up moving south to this little small town in St. David, Arizona. It was like the surface of Mars, this kind of Arizona. Nothing was there. And she bought this brand new house just to let my dad convalesce and become himself again. I dropped out of college and I started working at a fucking Walmart. I was working at the photo lab, which is kind of ironic. <laughs> Big genre of photography in Arizona is like cops not wearing any clothes, shooting machine guns. Saw a lot of that <laughs> in the photo lab. But like, everything's gone. Like, I don't get to dream about stand-up anymore. I don't get to fucking go to school. I don't get to do anything other than raise money to help pay the mortgage because my dad couldn't fucking take it anymore. It was horrible. Like, having all that potential and being in a small town making $8 an hour developing pictures, like... One day, a year later, after moving there, uh, we get a phone call. And it's from Bob. Bob talks to my mom, talks to my father, and he talks to me. He's like, how you doing, kid? I was like, not good. Everything sucks. Like, I even felt like the next-door neighbor's goat was mocking me when I was coming home from work. Just, Durr. I was like, yeah, I know, my life sucks. <laughs> and I'm like, tell him that. 
And Bob's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm just trying to be good. I'm trying to be a good son. Bob's like, you can't do that, man. Who told you that that's the way you live your life? You gotta like try to do the thing that makes you you. You're supposed to be like a comedian or a writer. Your potential. I'd like to say that that was an impetus to do something about it after that phone call wrapped up. Like I was gonna be better. But that's not how life works when you're a fuck up. Like it takes a few more months of thinking about it. Collecting up college brochures and then never really responding to them and like trying to be somebody. My year passes. I'm still working that shitty job. I'm still paying the mortgage. And my father tells me to come home. And he's like, I need to talk to you. So I come home. He's sitting at the dinner table. And he's smoking a cigarette. And it's like the ash is huge. And he said, um, I tried to call Bob today. And I said, okay. What's, what's up? And he said, when did we talk to Bob? And I said, okay, it was um, November of 2005. Black Friday was coming. People are animals. I knew it was happening. We just moved into this house. I remember you guys had it built. My dad said, yeah, okay, okay, okay. I said, okay, what's the problem? He said, I called Bob's house. Bob died in June of 2005. And I'm standing there and I'm like, this isn't funny. This is fucked up. It's just like the, the, the laughter in the closet. This is something that never, like, I just went like, as soon as I fucking figured that out, it took me three months to stack up cash. I just started working on it because I'm thinking about what he told me. You can't live your life like that. And I'm not thinking about whether or not ghosts are real because that's immaterial. That'll fuck up your life thinking that at any moment some Civil War general's gonna come into the shower with you, <laughs> bleed all over the walls and shit. Like, you don't need that possibility in your head. And besides which, like, my student loans are far scarier than any of this shit. But it, it, it just, like, broke something. I still haven't unpacked what this all fucking means. I just know that I've lived my life differently. I lived it like it was mine. I wasn't worried about what shitty outcome was going to happen at the end if I tried to do something for myself. I lived. It's not so much about whether or not I believe in ghosts. It's that a ghost believed in me. Thanks, guys. Do you ever feel as if you couldn't breathe? Your tongue is thick in your mouth, your throat is hoarse, your lungs are bursting for air. It seems as if the walls of your room are closing in on you, crushing you, crowding you, sealing you off from the rest of the world. And then you awake. It was only a dream. Or it wasn't. I'm about 14 years old, and I'm laying on the floor. Even though I'm 14, I'm still afraid of monsters under the bed. So, I sleep on the floor. That way, the monsters can't be underneath the bed. I share my bedroom with my sister. 
She sleeps in her daybed next to mine. Her daybed has little porcelain hearts all over it that rattle whenever she moves. We have a small vanity that's covered in fake gold plate. I can see the moonlight reflected off of the vanity across the way from me. I can't sleep. We have a fan going to create some white noise because the house makes a lot of creaking sounds at night. I have a bed sheet hanging across the room to give myself some privacy and the fan is blowing the bed sheet back and forth. I wish I could just fall asleep and get on with the next day. That's when I hear something. A thump and a drag. It's in the living room. My heart speeds up. My fingers clench. My muscles knot up. I don't know what it is. Everyone else is asleep. And then I hear it again. And it's closer. But it's in the living room. It's not my problem. It's still far away. My dad will get it. Whatever it is, my dad will get it. And then I hear another thump. And another drag. And I think, oh my gosh, what is that? What could be making that noise? And why is it coming this way? Another thump. And another drag. And another thump. And another drag. And it's getting closer and closer. And now it's it's in the kitchen. I can't move. I'm too afraid. I can't move. It's just scaring the crap out of me. And my dad isn't waking up, and my mom isn't waking up, and my sister isn't waking up. No one else is awake. It's just me and this thing, whatever this thing is, and it's still coming towards me, and I can't move. I'm too afraid to move. All I can do is lay there and look and wait, and it gets closer. A loud thump and a loud drag. I can feel its presence, and it's very close. And I know that it's going to be in my room. I can't move. And I just scream at myself, move, do something. And I just cannot move. I can't look away. I can't do anything. And my heart, it's beating so fast. Thump. Drag. It's coming closer. And I can't do anything about it. But I see a silhouette up against the vanity. It's spiky black hair with twigs sticking out of it. A thump and a drag. It's down here on the floor with me. It's coming very close. It's in my bedroom. I want to look away. I want to run. I want help. But I can't do anything but lay there and watch as I see a pale white hand. So pale and so white it's almost blue. Reach out from the darkness and land right next to me. It looks like the hand of a corpse. It looks like it's covered in boggy water. Thump. And I hear the dragging sound. I can see the torso of a body dragging along the ground, coming right towards me. He looks like a corpse. Like a teenager that's dead. Someone who died at the same age as me. He has no legs and just one arm. His severed limbs are nothing but 
nubs. All he is is a torso and one arm. The thump is him smacking the ground and the dragging sound is him bringing his body along with him. And the moonlight illuminates a face. A face that looks like something that has just come out of the depths of a swamp. A face with no eyes. I cannot look at his face. If I look at his face, I'm going to die. This is death, and he's here for me. My heart is beating so fast. I can't move, and I'm so afraid, but I just can't help myself. I have to look. I look into his eyes, and I know that I'm about to see death. But he doesn't have eyes. Instead of the flesh that should be there, it's a deep, dark hole of nothingness. Dark, empty sockets. There is nothing in his head but pitch black darkness. I can feel the gravity pulling me into that darkness. And he's looking at me with these empty eyes. And he opens his mouth. He lets out a gut-wrenching scream. But he doesn't make a sound. And as he's screaming, I can feel my body go numb. It starts with my feet. My heart is beating so fast, I think to myself, I'm dying of a heart attack. It goes up my legs. I think, I'm dead, because I looked at him. Up to my stomach, up to my shoulders. This is what I get. And then I'm gone. I can't feel anything at all. I can't see anything anymore. I just see static, like on an old television. And then I'm floating. I think to myself, I'm dead. This is it. I don't exist. And then I stop floating up, and my vision comes back. I can see myself laying on the ground. I just look like a lump of clay. I don't look like I have any blood pumping through my body at all. I think, I gotta get mom and dad. I gotta tell them that I'm dead. (laughs) So I float into the living room. I can hear the clock ticking. Underneath the clock, I see a scythe. And I think to myself, we don't have one of those. And I can feel a cold presence next to me. I look over, and in my father's chair, I see the end of everything in a black hooded cloak but he has no physical form. I am so scared. This is too much for me to deal with. I just want my mom and dad to help me. I need their help. I can't do this alone. So I float to my parents' room. They have a set of double doors. And I reach out to open those doors and my hand goes through the doorknob because I don't have a body. 
And I think, oh man, I need a body to open the door. I need a body to talk to my parents and I don't have one. And that's when everything flips on me. The whole picture shifts to an underground subway. I see Asian people, well-dressed, on their way to and from work. They're all in a hurry. They're not looking at me. They don't care that I'm there. And I'm walking past these people thinking, I'm going to kill her. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill that person. All these people are going to die because of me. I look around, and the neon lights overhead cast everything into a yellow tinge. I feel far away, floating, but I'm walking. There I am in a subway, carrying a heavy bag. I'm another person, and I have some objective to complete. I look around and I see a man in a white business suit with a black tie and he's carrying a briefcase and he's talking to himself about what he needs to do, but I don't understand the language he's speaking in. I keep my eyes on my feet and I get on the train. I have this heavy bag and I set it down on a seat and I unzip it. I see switches and buttons and counters. And I think, oh, this is a bomb. I have to use this bomb. And I have been sent here to blow up this train. And there's a switch that all I have to do is flip it. And I think, I don't want to do this. I don't want to kill these people. I don't want to kill myself. But I know I won't have enough time to get away. I'm going to die in this blast too. I think to myself, I'm not going to do this. I don't have to do this. Why has my life come to this? Why did things go in this direction for me? And then I hear another voice. It's another side of me. And it says, you have to do this. You don't have a choice. There's no backing out of this. You have to do it. There is no way out. I flip the switch, and the counter starts counting down, and I run away as fast as I can, and I feel like it's been two seconds when a blinding flash of light goes off behind me, and my ears just go, boom, and my ears get completely blown out, and then I feel the heat hit me and I'm thrown forward, and the blast lifts me up off of my feet and rips my scalp off from the base of my neck and tears all of my hair off. And the back of my scalp and all of my hair and all of the blood smacks me right in the face. And everything goes black. There's pins and needles everywhere. The sensation is returning to my body. Numbness and tingling, pins and needles, worse than I've ever felt before. All of that trapped energy from 
muscles that aren't moving just going haywire. I think to myself, oh man, I'm back in my room. But is the swamp boy still here? He could be right next to me. What if he's still looking at me? I look over and I see that he's gone. It was all over. I was back in my own life, in my own body again. Reality had restored itself. Everything was okay. But I didn't know it yet. So I got up, I threw open the double doors, and I woke up my mom and dad. And I I screamed and I cried and I told them everything that had just happened. And they listened. And they were worried. Even though they were tired, and even though they had to work in the morning, they listened. And they told me that it was going to be okay, and I didn't believe them. But they also said they were going to get me help, and they did. I don't miss the Swamp Boy, but I can see the fun side of him showing up in my room at that night. And that's why I've been going to therapy ever since I was a teenager. And it's gotten me through. all for this week's episode folks this is talking heads behind me now and we just heard from Moloch masters if you've never heard of sleep paralysis you should google it it's really bizarre really fascinating stuff uh, before that a little interstitial by a risk fan jj evans sent us in that little piece we called pumpkin splice And before that, Ian Steffe with his story about his dad. Okay, what do I have to tell you now? (laughs) I've always got something to motherfucking tell you. Oh, yes. John LaSala did the editing for the Moloch Masters story. Again, remarkable work editing there. Both John and Jeff did great jobs on the stories they edited this week. Also, I do want to tell you that we take pitches for scary stories 
every day of every week of every year. If you have a scary story, you could be on next year's episode or the one after that. Just pitch us at pitches at show.com. You can find out a lot more at the submissions page at show.com. We want your scary stories all year round. Pitch it now. Do I mean you should pitch us now? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Every single day I tell people to pitch us and they say, wait, wait, do you mean pitch you? Yeah, yeah, uh, that is, that's what I'm telling you. Pitch us the story. Well, I don't know. I mean, our family once dug up a dead body buried underneath the floorboards of my bedroom, but I'm just not sure what you mean I should do. What I mean you should do is Pitch us at pitches at risk-show.com. Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. Don't forget that Risk has a sister company. It's called The Story Studio, where we teach people storytelling skills. You can do one-on-one training over Skype with one of our coaches, or you can do an in-person group workshop in New York or Los Angeles or Minneapolis, or you can download our video courses and take them at your own pace in your own time, or you can hire The Story Studio for your corporate workshops. We have done workshops for people like Google and Pfizer and Citibank, and they love us. (laughs) So check us out at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. guys um you know i thought i would just say a few more words here about well i don't know i I guess i could start with you know how when you need stamps oh jesus i'm sorry we don't have to talk about that at all you know what about our patreon don't Jesus, God, no, okay, no talk about Patreon, of course, you know, but I did want to at least throw in a word about pitching us your story, oh, God, Uh, dildos at adamandeve.com, Jesus Christ, I mean, we do have some live dates I didn't mention before coming up. For God's sake, I at least have to talk about the Risk book. I mean, have you reviewed it on Amazon? Whoa! Oh, oh, Jesus. I am so sorry. The horror! The horror!